I appreciate the applause now. I'm not sure I'll get any afterwards, but <laughs> take what I can get. I'd like to, good morning, too. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll be in chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. And some, while you're finding your way there, some of you might have noticed that the outline inserted into the bulletin this morning is a little more Spartan than usual. <laughs> and that isn't just because I was lazy or any number of other excuses that, that I could find. What, what I'd like to do, rather than try and follow where we are, or see where we're going next, or see when we're going to be done and get into lunch. Rather you listen, not, not just to what I'm saying, but listen to what the Lord is saying to you. And as He speaks, make a note of it. Find a place and write it down. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit of our God. Heavenly Father, I would ask that you not let me stand in the way of what you have to say this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts to your will and your leading. Amen. Now, admittedly, we find ourselves kind of right in the middle of this letter that Paul has written. And so, for a little bit of context and to catch us up, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and it's a new church, not, not new in the sense that it's the hip church plant from out of town, or new like they got a new sign, but new as in it's filled with predominantly new believers, not people that had been raised in that faith, not people that had been raised in the church. And if they were raised in the church, it was not the right one. Uh, and in Corinth, they were deeply steeped in a pagan culture and lifestyle. And so after an introduction, Paul is addressing certain issues that, that are found in the church. <clears throat> you know, there's things, there's disunity in the church. You know, there's even a couple of guys having a disagreement, and one's filed a lawsuit against the other. Uh, one fellow's sleeping with his stepmother. And, you know, some, some they're going through some growing pains. And Paul is seeking to address these, you know, one in, one in this chapter, and the next chapter, and the next chapter. And... As I read it, it's kind of my opinion that I wouldn't say he's necessarily frustrated, but by chapter 6, it seems to me that Paul wants to make this blanket statement that just covers, covers a real basic thing. And so he rattles off this list of sins and reminds them of a couple of things. One, and this is where, where we are now that we'll spend a little bit of time, is that the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. And now admittedly, this is a struggle for some churches. And I don't think that it is here. I think that we can get through this part fairly quickly. But we do have to admit that in reading this, certainly there is this category, and the theological term for it is pretty simple. It's called sin. That sin does exist. 
And so we read a list like this, and one of the dangers that we have to be able to avoid is reading this list as if it's some sort of comprehensive list. You know, because <clears throat> while you list many things, there's certainly things that we know are sins that do not find their way onto this list. You know, like kidnapping and slavery aren't on there, murder is not on there, um, the truly egregious sins of our day, such as people's opinions on masks, vaccines, and politics aren't mentioned. So we know not everything finds its way into this list. And that's important to understand because one of, the, one of the dangers is we look at a list like this and we want to say, well, those are the things that we shouldn't do. And to be fair, they are things you shall, should not do. But we want to read it as if it's some sort of a checklist and say, well, those are the things I shouldn't do, and I haven't done them, so I'm doing pretty okay. I'm a pretty swell guy. That isn't the point that Paul's trying to make. The point that Paul's trying to make is he's trying to make this delineation. He's trying to form these two categories. There is righteousness, but there's unrighteousness too. There is godliness, and there's ungodliness. And so what he's really doing, he's contrasting not necessarily these behaviors, but a lifestyle. A lifestyle that is given to wickedness or a lifestyle that is given to repentance. Now, like I said, that should be pretty straightforward for us. <clears throat> but one of the big problems with focusing on verses 9 and 10 only is what we just described. But for a very important reason, in verse 11, Paul mentions and reminds them of a simple truth that I think it's important for us to be reminded of also from time to time. Because right after he, he mentions all these sins and that people that do those things do not inherit the kingdom of God, what does he say? But such were some of you. And we are wont to often forget that. Excuse me. And it's here where I'd like to spend the majority of our time, energy, and focus this morning. Because one of the great dangers that creeps in among people that, especially people that find themselves faithfully attending church every Sunday morning, you know, for decades and decades even, is that they, they begin to believe that because of where they park their rear end for an hour, once a week, that they're doing pretty okay. And we often want to forget that such were some of you. Now, the psychological term for this is called denial. Um, and, and it's kind of tricky how it creeps in. It's kind of tricky how the devil uses this. Is because I don't think any of us in this room now are brazen or brash enough to say that we are without sin. I think we know better than that. But functionally, the way that we act and behave kind of belies that point. Now, what do I mean? We're not actually saying that we're without sin, but we kind of think from time to time that we are. And you see this in, in ways like, like when we read the list, we, we want to compare ourselves, or what 
what many Christians have gotten really good at doing is finding somebody that sins a little worse than we do or has done something a little more wicked. We're really good at finding that person that is worse than us by some measure and drawing a line between that person and me and finding myself on the other side of it and saying, that's what wickedness looks like. I'm over here, so I'm doing fine. And you see this in other ways, like how certain sins have fallen out of our vocabulary altogether. Things such as sloth or gluttony, things that are clearly laid out as sinful behaviors in the Bible, have almost entirely fallen out of the vernacular. When's the last time you felt very convicted about slothfulness or gluttony? Now, sure, we say things like, oh, well, you know, I had a lazy afternoon, or, oh, I ate too much. But do we say that, and do we feel the conviction as if that is some sort of sin? I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times that we don't. Because there are certain sins that we are looking at and certain behaviors that we are, want to think are acceptable. And not, not acceptable in, like, we're totally okay with it, but acceptable as in we, we think that we can somehow ignore them. And it's like we're willing to admit they're there, but we want to put them in that closet in the back of the house and to turn the lights off and shut the door. And we know it's there, but maybe we can pretend like it's not. You see this when, when maybe you talk about your own sin. And, and I hear people talk about it, and I catch myself doing it from time to time. And we say things like, you know, I can be selfish at times or gentle from the reality that we live in, that really there's no way that we can really grasp at it and face it, do something about it, and surely never repent of it. And so maybe an example of what I'm saying is when, you, when we talk about our own sin, do we say, oh, well, my pride got the better of me? Or are we willing to face what it truly is and say, I'm a prideful person. I'm a, I put a lot of faith in my ability to do certain things and accomplish things, and I put very little faith some, sometimes in God. I take a lot of it into my own hands. And that was especially relevant to me uh, in the past week when preparing for this sermon. I like to use a computer to organize my thoughts and create an outline. And the week before last in doing this, my computer just died. Like, no, nothing on it, nothing worked. But, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, People have been preaching without computers for a little while now. <laughs> Certainly, if they can do it, so can I. And so I took things into my own hands and said, you know, we'll take a break for today. Tomorrow, I'll pull out a legal pad and some index cards, and we'll just get to work. And it just so happened that tomorrow rolled around, and while preparing breakfast in the kitchen, um, slicing up some potatoes uh, for, for, some, for some hash browns, and then I'm slicing up my thumb, and then, then I noticed that was a problem. Because I, I sliced the tip of my thumb off with the mandolin. And it wasn't, not, eh, well, thank you for your concern, but it wasn't, I got so mad. And it wasn't a really serious injury. But I don't like to think of myself as someone that can make a mistake. And clearly, with the tip of my thumb laying in the potatoes, it was pretty hard to argue. 
But I think more than that, subconsciously I knew that my plans to sit down and write this out by hand had been thwarted. And, you know, being dyslexic, I, writing already takes me forever. And my handwriting is atrocious. You can ask my mother, she's here with us today, I'll embarrass her. Um, and I knew that this was a problem. Like, it's right where I hold a pencil. And I got so angry. And then my wife, Kim, walked in and asked me, what's, what's the matter? You know, I was like, stewing in my anger. And I saw the opportunity to be mad at someone else. <laughs> I saw the, the object of all my wrath, and I lashed out at her. And I did that so that I didn't have to be mad at myself. And for that, Kim, I'm sorry, I repent. I would ask that you please forgive me. But when we talk about our pride, is it like that? Or is it just, oh, you know, I can be prideful. Because one way we can really face it, if we consider it in the latter, we can deal with that. We can pray about that. We can share that with others and invite others in our community, in our small groups, into our lives in a way that we seek to change and repent of that wickedness. The other way is just very difficult to really get a handle on. And the first big problem with that, that kind of denial of our own sin, is it serves as an obstacle between us and the Lord. Now, Jerry was talking about this a little bit last week from 1 Peter, when, when Peter's talking about certain behaviors that would hinder our, and hamper our prayer. He'd also talked about, I don't remember how many weeks ago, but it came up earlier in that chapter, or in that book, 1 Peter, and will come up again in the future. But we don't like to think about the reality that we might do something that separates us from God. But the Bible's very clear on this. That there are certain things that I am doing and can do that separate me from God. And living in sin unrepentant and pretending like I'm not is certainly one of those things. Now the other big problem with it is it not only separates us from God, but it separates us from other people. The people that we are called to reach. Now, we really don't like to think about that either. And I thought of some creative ways that I might try and explain this. But then I was listening to a radio show, uh, I mean a podcast. I was just recently educated. We don't do radio shows anymore. They're called podcasts. <laughs> um, and the host was interviewing Rosario Butterfield, whom some of you, I think are aware of. I've, I've heard some of you all talking about a book she, she has written. I've admittedly not, not read it. I've, I've heard of it. But when she was being interviewed, I hadn't even heard of who she was. But she was talking about this very issue. And what she said wasn't particularly intellectual. And it wasn't one of those things that's very profound. But it was one of those things that is said with such a ring of truth that it just resonates. You know what I mean? And she said, she was talking about the observations that she'd made, you know, when, when she was lost and before she came to a saving faith, and then after, 
and also her time afterwards while being in the church. And, and she said this, you know, I have observed that we as Christians, we as the church, have gotten very good at showing grace to ourselves and one another, but not very good with sharing that with those outside our circle. And I'd like, that to, I'd like you to stew on that for just a little bit. And my uh, more simple redneck explanation of that is we've gotten really good at forgiving ourselves. And first of all, forgiving yourselves is, is entirely a product of pop psychology. You cannot forgive yourself. That's not worth a whole lot. You can forgive those that you have sinned against. You can, they can forgive you. The Lord God in heaven can forgive you. But forgiving yourself doesn't do a whole lot. Now, back to what I was saying. We've gotten pretty good at being able to forgive ourselves and also very good at condemning others that, that we don't like very much. Now, there's this term getting thrown around a lot these days called cancel culture. Um, and the best that I can tell is that means when someone does something that we don't like or says something that they weren't supposed to, that they should uh, be thrown off of the Facebook and the Twitter and they should probably lose their job. And that's, that's terrible when it's someone I agree with. And as long as the person said something I don't like, they probably should lose their job and get thrown off the Twitter. So that's, that's my best understanding of what cancel culture is. But I wonder if we do that as Christians. Now, not in the same way, but do we look at the world around us and think about those people said something that, that I don't like, or those people are doing something they shouldn't. And they very well might be. What they're doing might very well be sin. But what I don't want us to forget is such for some of you. And the grace that God has given you, He can give to them also. Do you guys like magic? Pretend like you do for a minute. Because I've got a magic trick for you. A theological magic trick. I bet you've never even seen one of those. Now the problem that I'm talking about is because when we talk about grace, so often, the grace that we're talking about is the grace that we've received. And that grace is, is right, and that grace is amazing, and that grace is something to be cherished. But grace isn't just something that you get. Grace isn't just forgetting. Grace is also forgiving. And if I say the magic words, you see, we changed it. But did we really? Now, grammatically, yes, but I'm not your grammar teacher. I'm not here to teach you grammar. I'm here to do magic. <laughs> Theologically and functionally, what has changed? Sure, there's three words where there used to be four. But when we are forgiving, are we not giving grace to those that need it? Now, this is the part where you clap and... And we get on with things so we can get to lunch. I get it. 
A good way for me to illustrate this is, um, I've got the time, so I'm going to use it. There was a movie that came out recently, and I really like it. It's a Mel Gibson film. It's called The Professor and the Madman. And now that I'm up here, I'm going to forget some important names. Uh, so bear with me, because I get nervous and all when I tell stories. Um, anyway, this, it's, a, it's a fantastic movie. You should watch it. It has some deep theological undertones that are really important. But it's essentially, what, what's happening is it's following the production of the Oxford English Dictionary, the second most important book in the English language. And some of you were laughing. Um, is seeking to do something that hasn't been done before. He wants to take every word in the English language, give them meaning, definition, but also it's based on historical principles. So he's, so they're trying to find how these words came to the came to have this meaning. Where was it? You know, when was when were they first used? If their meaning changed, when when did it change? And they get about a third of the way through A before they really get bogged down. And so he has this, this bright idea. Now, Professor Murray has this bright idea. They're going to enlist the help of all of the English-speaking world. And so they print all these flyers, and they put them in, in the dust jackets and covers of every book and every bookstore in all of England and America, soliciting help to say, we're looking for these words. Could you please help us find them? And... They're, come, they're getting some response, but it's still slow until just the right person finds it. A man by the name of, uh, see, I'm terrible with names, um, Dr. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> He's played, what, pardon? Doesn't, Debbie says it doesn't matter, we're moving on. So this, this doctor, <laughs> this genius, um, this Princeton-educated war surgeon finds, finds the flyer and commits his, all of his time, energy, and focus to finding these words that, that the entire team at the university could not find. And, and he's just a savant. The problem is, when the truth comes out about who this doctor really is, because he happens to be a convicted murderer institutionalized in an insane asylum. And when this comes out, it's a pretty bad look for the university. But nobody is more upset, Dr. Minor, that's his name, nobody is more upset than Professor Murray's wife when she reads this story and finds out that her husband has been associating and working with and visiting this insane convicted murderer, she is none too happy. And she is, there's this scene where she's just given him the riot act. You know, she said, how, how could you do this? How could you do this behind our backs? You know, what are people going to think of our family? What will the neighbors say? And she's just letting him have it, right? Until finally he finds a chance, Mel Gibson finds a chance to rebut. And he says, but can't he be forgiven? And being a pious, pious woman herself, she stammers a bit and reels. 
and he sees an opening to say a little more. And Professor Murray says, can't he too be redeemed? Isn't that what we believe? Isn't it? Now it's difficult in the modern day to, to agree upon what sin really is. But I think even, even in the West, in these days, we can all fairly well agree that um, human trafficking is not cool. Right? I mean, to put a finer point on it, race-based chattel slavery is not good. You know, rounding folks up based on the color of their skin, sending them to auction, selling them for, as farm equipment is not, is not something that we as believers ought to do. And when you think about it, how comfortable would you be sitting next to uh, a human trafficker or a kidnapper in church? Probably not very comfortable. That's not, that's not a real good look for the church. I think we believe that because we think we're better than that. I think we, th we believe in our hearts that that sin, and I didn't do it, so I'm okay. The problem with this way of thinking is that is keeping us from our calling. That way of thinking is what keeps us from reaching the lost people that Christ told us to reach. Now, if you don't think that's, that's true, look around. How many visitors do you see? And if you see some, are they here because you brought them here? Now, we can, ha we can hand out flyers and make Facebook posts and hang door hangers and have seminars on evangelism all we want. And those are good things. I'm not denigrating those things. But if the problem is, I don't want to share my faith with people that I don't like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We have to admit the truth that the same grace that saved us is good enough for them also. So that is the gospel. Now back to 1 Corinthians. This is often, today's a communion Sunday, and 1 Corinthians is normally our reading as we prepare to celebrate communion. And as our ushers and elders come forth to, to get ready to prepare communion, I want to remind you why we read 1 Corinthians. It's because one of those issues that they were struggling with in the church is that when they were practicing communion, there was, there was some rich folks that had some fancy clothes and brought some fancy food, and then there were some other folks that didn't quite have as much. And one of the practices in that church was to let them fancy folks go first. And one of the things that would often happen 
is when the folks at those fancy people didn't like all that much, the have-nots, and the end of the line got there, there wasn't much left over. In this very letter, Paul describes that as they are eating and drinking to their own destruction. That is something that we ought to consider. I'd like you to think about how that disunity within the body, but more than that, within the world that we are called to reach, is affecting the gospel that we are commanded to share. Now this morning, we're going to make two lines, you know, in, in either aisle. And everybody's going to get the elements, and we'll go back to our seats. And once everybody's served, we'll partake of it together. Now this, this is a meal that we as believers share with each other because of God's grace. But in the time while the music plays and you wait for everybody to be served like you to think about that the sacrifice God made for you is the same sacrifice he made for those out there. Now as we, as we recall at the table on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he commanded his disciples to whenever they partook of this meal to do it in remembrance of him. We are to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, that on, on that cross his body was broken for us, and that his blood was shed to cover our sins. Oh, I almost forgot to finish that story um, about that... Uh, human trafficker that we don't want to sit with at church. Well, it turns out that someone let him in their church. In fact, they actually made him the pastor of their church. And his name was John Newton. He was instrumental to the, in the abolition of slavery in England. He's most well known as the author of Amazing Grace which is a song about exactly this, not forgetting the sin that we are saved from and not ever believing that someone's sin is too great for the cross.